0: We're going to be starting about three minutes. Hey, welcome, everyone, to the final installment of the Fall New Writing Series. Uh, we, uh, we're we so excited about this event, and uh, uh, in that spirit, we have kind of a collective intro- introductory chorus that uh, apparently is, is going to welcome here today. Uh, before... Uh, we, we get there however I'll just again kind of warn people uh, about the acoustics of this this room uh, this I don't know why they built this place like this but it's very resonant in particular the, the seating area so <laughs> if you get up to walk out uh, because you have another commitment please wait for an appropriate moment in the, in the uh, or better yet just stay for the entire event uh, uh, but uh, okay, so Collective Chorus, uh, join, join us. Okay.
1: We send the roots down. It is autumn, pomegranate
2: is a stubborn stain. I feel so observed, I'm paralyzed. Close your eyes.
3: Again. My eyes are closed. Again. My eyes are closed. We
1: are existing together in a corner of the world surrounded by the ocean, already defeated by the ocean. It contains our beginnings and in the way in
2: that way is a grave.
3: There is something appealing about the dialogue.
2: Because it makes us real or it makes us unreal. It makes us words.
1: We are walking fish along the coast.
3: Our presence then is virtual since we won't be speaking this.
1: We refuse to say the word ghost, the word haunted. We refuse to acknowledge that the fish are already dead.
2: I am constantly trying to escape.
1: And still buy new ones. To what extent are we rehatchable? When can we no longer be
3: rehatched? I seek parentheses as haven but am only more exposed.
1: We wonder if something that hasn't been mourned can be dead, if something that has been found can be dead, if something that isn't dead could have been here to begin with. Grief is a leash that, without a body attached, refuses to leave.
3: Is is this the place to mention laurels? Her books? The Vanishing Point of Desire? Swans in Half-Mourning? The Old Philosopher? Fish in Exile Now?
2: What if we keep going and, in the end, tell them we are not real? We are an extension of her? And then Laurels, MFA in Fiction from Brown University, the John Hawks and Feldman Prizes in Fiction, and the Kimann Arstech Memorial Award in Poetry
3: and all. Oh, I like that very much. We must be a generation of dogfish and pistachio. And her birth in Vietnam? You can be pistachio.
2: Thanks. I always wanted a handmade dress. If she weren't born in Vietnam, there would be less ocean in here.
3: My name is a ripped fishnet. It couldn't be better.
2: We keep going back
1: to the ocean to find, to lift, to fail.
3: Is this an end?
2: It will be, once you name her. We We
3: welcome welcome
2: VT now.
4: That was an unusual introduction I've ever been, <laughs> Thank you. Um, I like music a lot, so um, thank you for having me here. Um, um, I wouldn't be here if um, it wasn't for the love of Sandra and Ben and for having me here. <clears throat> I'm going to read from uh, three books. Um, Oh God, Your Babies Are So Delicious, uh, Fish in Exile, and The Old Philosopher. Obviously, you know that Fish in Exile is my novel, and The Old Philosopher is my poetry collection. And Oh God, Your Babies Are So Delicious is um, my collection of short stories. I'm gonna start um, with this collection of short stories. Normally I'm going to read from Fish in Exile, but um, I made a film for it. So it has excerpts from both, um, the film is called In the Direner Bath. It's a poem from the old philosopher, um, a poem called In the Direner <laughs> Um And Fish in Exile, is, the excerpt from, um, it's also taken, the, the movie is taken from, um, from page 109 of um, First in Exile. So it will combine my love for poetry, filmmaking, and fiction, and, but I'll tell more about it when when I present the film. On uh, the first story, I'm gonna read from Oh God, of are So Delicious. Um, it's called Super Aroused women During Sandstorms. Who is willing to stand by the throat glance and watch saliva turn into silver? Do elephants glance at each other or do their ears get in the way? Their ears are blocking the rain from getting into getting to their cheekbones, but rain does not rain sideways. In fact, rain rained down vertically. The elephant thinks this is a big problem, horizontal rain. The problem with horizontal rain is that it is devotedly, devoted purely to dust and sand and not liquid. Liquid is blackmailed by gravity, and gravity feels liquid as a threat to its life's centrifugal force. Gravity is afraid of man-made hoses. Gravity is afraid of their horizontal potential. Even sandstorms do not move absolutely horizontal. They slant just lightly at an angle. Perhaps sandstorms love telling the truth. Sandstorms love other people's open zippers. This is why it is important during sandstorms to cover eyes, ears, mouth Mal- and mouth but also a genitals. After all vaginas are created with lips, if coated with saliva and sand, they become velcro, performing almost like a makeshift zipper, turning an unfortunate zipperless situation into a zipperful thing. But the penis has nowhere to go. It can't be velcro unless it enters some type of female organ during a sandstorm. But even then, who is interested in pointed Velcro that won't open and close like hands, doors, and lips? But must the penis wait for a windy day to be Velcro? Only on a windy day does the penis get an opportunity for the backward whiplash of an accelerating ejaculation, an ejaculation that points its finger back at the penis. Even a windy day is not completely secure either. What if the wind that carries the sand is deft to the west side of the hemisphere? If the wind is moving in the same direction of the ejaculation, then it only extends extraordinarily more the gap between the ejaculation and the penis. The penis and the sand can't stop wool-gathering about turning into temporary Velcro, men do not experience vagina envy during a sandstorm they just envy velcro velcro is wonderful in many senses it is sonically marvelous it is an addiction the sound as one tears one stripped of velcro from itself is just absolutely orgiastic who would want to have sex if one were in possession of velcro one could spend all day separating one velcro from another and dips one's ear's ear in the sonic bath of compulsory velcro separation. The sound that emits from the tearing apart of velcro sounds like two pulsating clitoris who know furniture or ambient music too well. It is hard to find non man made velcro these days. One walks by two men kissing and one desires to compliment I love, love, love your Velcro. Sapphic fornication is tedious for women who grow out their pubic hair. Liquid makes their hair sticky and it's matted down and two women making love with each other. is like spending an evening at the ER, removing bandages from the skin of motorcycle accident victims. But sandstorms are pretty on women and on elephants. What about two cacti who sit side by side? What about them? The second one I'm gonna read from this collection is called The Problem With Literature Today. The problem with literature today is that everyone (coughs) stops breathing. That's that. The third one I 'm going to read from this uh, collection is um, it's called Mary Poppin's Parasol. so it's, it's a little long Goodbye. <laughs> Mary Poppins' parasol. I've been crawling nonstop from wall to wall. A blank wall encloses my body, but divides my attention span and peripheral vision. Above, shadows move back and forth, evoked by the threshold of time and windows without chassis. It's not a home for a body, not a laboratory to exhale angst or contain silent themes, not a place for flesh or refuge for distorted bodies, not a correctional facility for felonious stomach aches generated by poor consumption of mango skins, spilled blueberry shakes, or cream cheese over raw phyllo dough. I am just a child. I've been in the habit of putting the wrong things in my mouth. My neo-natal asshole is a spillway. My mother will tell you more about it if you feed her duck confit on baked plum. She will tell you about the time when I stuffed my lungs with feathers and became a down comforter. The truth of it is that I'm very soft like butter, that you can find comfort in watching me and find comfort in distributing me around a room. I am that soft. But at the rate I'm crawling, my body is becoming more meshy, flesh-wise, and more mesomorphic. Would you just say that if you whip me with your hands, mother, it would be as if you were whipping a Neolithic stone with your powder hand in your summer dress? Milk and I no longer share a codependent relationship with one another. No separation anxiety there. I drink whatever I like. My mother withdrew the straw from her mammary glance just last month and abandoned me to a trampoline with walls. I drink watered-down plaster from concentrate. My mother has been having sex regularly, and when she does, she puts me in a playpen. The trampoline with walls I mentioned earlier. Not wanting to change diapers, she places an abrasive towel at the bottom of the playpen. This is how I get rug burn from crawling. I pee and poop there wherever, whenever I like. There's a lot of freedom here. Not the kind of freedom that suggests that no one is going to fuck me, but along the lines of the freedom of knowing that restraint is overrated. She's having sex for cocaine. Her white powder can are very likable. I sniff for deluge, for coca, for salt, for blue dolphins, for baking soda. The men she brings around are dark and white and stinky, that dicks curls like Mary Poppins' parasol. Whenever they come around, it rains, then it signs. And I think of all the colors of the rainbow, and I observe that not a single one of the rainbow colors from the window looks like the men. It's strange that God does not make men from pigments of the rainbow. I think that bo- that is both strange and sad. I think it may be an illusory goal to ask what God has in mind. When he touches the earth to make our skin, I keep my mouth shut and crawl around the playpen, looking depressed like a donkey. In fact, my mother at this moment is also playing pinda-donkey with one of them, one of the men. She is over the place, covering a lot more territory on the bed than I could in my prime when I was crawling and not rug burned by the towel or the real carpet. The real carpet is deadly as the bed count is massive and thick and its edges are un- unbelievably sharp. I don't understand what anyone would want to put himself or herself in the carpet situation. Today something occurs, occurs that activates my thyroid glance. In fact, it is the only glance that is keeping me together. My mother is being raped today. Two men come and take control of her. Usually, one comes and one, and only one comes. Today, two come and it's really too much for her to handle. She is too inebriated to care and too unconscious to respond. She wants coke, but they don't have coke they have Mary Poppins belongings and they want to stuff my mother's belongings with Mary Poppins belongings. It's very confusing what belongs to to what and to whom, but I notice on her mat, on her mattress that the men and my unconscious mother are confused about territory and possession. I understand that much. I understand that I'm just a donkey. I cry in drawls and in hiccups, but no one hears me. When the men stop, they come to look at me. They look at me as if I were a security camera they want to crush. They gaze at my chubby fingertips to look at my mouth, to look at my dripping saliva, to look at the depth of my esophagus, to see the bottom of my larynx. They see the pee, that poop to the corner, and excitedly and decidedly, they leave. After they leave, I watch my mother Her body flag rolls heavily on the surface of the mattress like a broken wing of a dinosaur. She is torn in so many places, is so mesosaurian and extinct, And I want so bad to crawl to her. But the thin partition in this enclosure made of nylon prevents me from entering her circus. The circus is a prison where pain exchanges the graveyard hours with silence. The hours stretch long. Without touching, I'm unable to determine if my mother dies or if something in her already died. The hours are so long and the white light is so white. And when they raped her, it is bright in the middle of the afternoon so that pain is captured exactly, sharply, and concretely, not in a moment not in the dark, but suspended in the air to be elongated out like stars when they're trying to burn all their light away so that they do not feel anything anymore and their bodies crunch up like coals. After all, my mother's body is a place where men open and unopen their umbrellas even when it doesn't rain. My mother is an anti deluvian, mesogastic place of misery and despair beyond anyone's repair. But I believe I could repair her. I could tape her body together with the adhesive now and then of time. I could knit her wounds together like a bundle of meat from a culinary show I see flashing on TV 16 hours a day. I could climb over the fence, crawl to the kitchen, Put on my white floral apron and wash the thin strip of slice, sliced pork around butternut squash and basil's and parsley's and cumin and nutmeg and tie it all together with cooping with cooking rope. Knitting my mother won't be too far from that recipe. In fact, I am pretty good with stitching. If I were her doctor, I would stitch up both of her nasal passages. Not to prevent oxygen from entering or exiting, but to discourage cocaine sniffing. I could also stitch up her menopause or her menstrual orifice so that men could not open the umbrellas into her sky. Just thinking about this makes me so superhuman, like I could save anyone with my imagination, like I could save the world with this imagination. The only way I tolerate my poop in this playpen is because I imagine poop as a butterfly. I imagine this is how pigs feel about their own poop when they are in a real dirty pen. That's how pigs use their imagination. They oint because they are smart. They oint because their oint is a mobile device reminding them not to step on their own butterflies. On their way to the dinner, super grains and mesh hate bail, but most of all, if I were to repair my mother, I would press stickers of blue ladybugs around her wounds so that her spirit would look like a crater with a beautiful rim. A moon would want to curl into it if it ever gets cold, but mainly I would selfishly do it, repair my mother, that is, for me, so that I could have a home to return to. and I'm gonna be reading from the Old Philosopher. And the first poem I'm gonna read is called The Day God Smokes My Grandmother. God pulls my grandmother out of finally made a cigarette pack made of human tobacco and long red earth and bed sheets as long as a rubber tree. My family, all 20 of us, my grandmother, my cousins, my aunts and uncles all lie in a large secret cot, call a bed with tinfoil bedsheets pulled to our chins. We lie in rows on top of each other over soft bones. While my uncle steps out into my grandmother's grapevine, he withdraws a cigarette <coughs> from his jeans pocket and drags a smoke, a secret smoking a cigarette. Meanwhile, God pulls my grandmother out of her secret bed. sees wedged between my first aunt and my second aunt. He thumbs her head against the wooden lid of the well and lights my grandmother's head up. A fluttering of smoke is steamed out of her toes. God inhales and exhales the soul of my grandmother until so she withers and becomes an accordion of ash and God flicks the rest of my grandmother across our neighbor's spinach garden. God and my uncle takes turns smoking while God finishes nearly a pack of us, one by one. My uncle still ponders over his last three, sitting in their nearly empty compartment. My uncle stares into the ashtray of his hand and sobs until his hands become soot. We stay inside of our floorboard secret case and ponder when God is going to develop lung, can- lung cancer from smoking us. Not long ago in Lumkan, God hand rolls his own cigarettes. God licks the side of our bedsheets with his wet tongue and rolls me into a thin tobacco burrito. God smokes my cousin first, the one who was run over by a train in my uncle's backyard, near my grandmother's grapevine. God, the chronic smoker, likes his cigarettes, H three, short and stumpy. God doesn't like to smoke me. I smell too much like a conflicting mixture of lavender and walleye. Um, the next poem I'm gonna read is um, it's called you call yourself Joshua You asked me one where I buried the snow Along the river or was it along the spine of your brother's childhood As he stood wickedly before the tall pine I clapped the darkness with a walnut stick As the plaws emerging from your mouth To the opaque window which you mistook for a foggy Saturday You write on my body with fresh walnut cuss The rich oilseed hiding inside you and while it's fresh and verdant, I wait for you to oxidize. It is the skin that writes, you say, tad Pol- You call yourself Joshua, you call yourself Joshua, but I thought love was an act of chemical analysis, a place to measure your zinc to fatty acid production ratio. Was it too much to ask on the first date, on the second, while well, you bury your smell like I bury snow? as if yesterday couldn't stand to be by itself. I woke up along a bank to tell you that a phallusless lion made love to me and you had no choice but to watch my back arch. To write on my skin, you transported yourself to different centuries and asked in that dream, did you want to watch or be watched? You claw me and then you call yourself Joshua You claw my shirt off in the middle of the night and call yourself a Joshua. Post-oxidation, whatever you wrote on my body became black. As if to write, to truly write, is to fuck darkness. And you love fucking darkness, don't you? I privately ask. I love telling the truth, you say. You close my eyes with your mouth and my eyelids become Falling cherry blossoms I love darkness more than I love light I love you when you oxidize I love this and nothing more The last poem I'm going to read from this collection is called Despotic This body Hush I have this fantasy in the open meadow of baking my virgin body, open for her and the winter strawberries, berries so red, floating meekly, nakedly, feasting on snow. She's standing at the great crossing, her eyes longing, aching in the distant, gazing far into the dark flesh of the musky, desolate night her flesh to fill me, so velvety blue, her blouse filled with blue meads and prairie, standing there in suspended despair, such as the first half of the twentieth century of her body, her skirt heats earl like an oven, much later on a less controversial evening, she's on her euphratic knees, sucking my clitoris dry like the bone of the small desiccated delude. Not long ago, inside the Elohesaurus, my arms around her waist. The geology of desire traces fingers, its lineage are preheated around my clavicle. A necklace of wild pearls and rivets roaring for God, while I hold her form tightly around my body. Was her kiss a primable, or was my longing impartial? A complicated cycle of dispute, her canon and my canon with despotic hushed and rushed backward, forward, a little bit in time, when her face is buried in my neck, Jacob's tongue undulating on his barren's mother's bare chest. I suffused the history of Babylon exile by closing my eyes and closing her eyes. If I had to hold something in captivity, why not her revulsions for dirty fat, wrapped in loincloth, feeble go and rasping rain? Had I resented the raw meat of human life, the thick temple of her desertion, she and I, our flesh tight and a perry. When I lift the golden blouse above her head And set our timer for disarray And she is sympatric and beautiful And I am naked, raspy, soft and rustic above her Rubbing inertia in motion in baking sheets in red wheelbarrow Our eager meat-tight white A knot of sedimentary fucking The victuals of Colonel poor nucleus, the nut and gist of my tight muscles, clutching her swollen inner thighs, and the animal flesh of her sucking on my neck, on my tongue, on my nipples, on my thighs, these uh, divisions of want, and the harsh uh, girl to depth of my moaning, and so quiet the grass beneath the solid muscle bound the weight of her Thrusting up into me, so that when yeast unites with salt and sugar, and the construction of hand on top of hand, arms wrapping pussy to pussy, fingers interlace hers and mine, and of my arching back bent like an eel into a crescent, the descending stratosphere, of flower woken clouds that arouse the Euphrates River to speak to swine and exiles. While the hour's keep bakes the earth and the dormant culture inside me, seized by geopolitical orgasm, makes the second shaking its metallic skirt like a timer once again as she widens her circle of ecstasy. It seemed all instrumental afterward, the way our desire expands on the wet grass as our bodies Shake, and I am in her arms and I am inside her Breasts overlapping, breast like post dough Over post dough I think how seamless the flesh is when it wants to gel And how such a plant with long, narrow leaves Wild and tireless, and is so capable of offering post-pomegranatic and post-pastry pleasure relinquished by Demeter's daughter to a fear, to a few fear-driven souls sitting in a semi-semiotic picture of sorrow. When the night drops its monolithic elevation and she is pouring her tongue into my mouth, I think, gee golly, how can we make this last and how much I love baking on grass. So um, I'm going to be uh, showing the film for the reading from *Fish um, in Exile. I won't be reading from the book. And um, the film is about ten minutes. I'm going to give you a preface for it before I start. um, um When I was at Brown, um, we we were in a um, demo which is a, a place where the poets and fiction writers would gather to have tea and talked about other poets and life and etc and One of the questions that one of my peers asked me says, "I don't know why he asked me because I haven't graduated then." Um, what what happened if writing doesn't work out you know like poetry doesn't really feed you know like um, it's not a um, livelihood that is sustainable for most and so he asked me this question and I thought for a moment and I gave him a reply um And so this is my response to his question. um, um, What happens after we graduated and we're poor and destitute?
5: Um, And this
4: is my reply. It's not the most practical, but it has its foundation in some reasoning. um, Anesthetics. So, So that's one aspect of the film. The other was I wanted to combine my love for poetry, fiction, -fiction, nonfiction, performance, and uh, film into one genre. And this 10 minute film is an embodiment of that, um, (coughs) of, um, of of me addressing those uh, concerns, it's a little bit boring. Um, so, but I think it's important to show boring things. Um, we live in a digital age where we have to engage with everything, and and if you do fall asleep, I think it's, it's a it's um, uh, it's a compliment, uh, <laughs> according to um, the filmmaker of um, Taste of Cherry Tree. What is his name? Uh, um, Cyrenian filmmaker, I can't remember, on top. But he says that he likes boring films because it allows you to fall asleep and because it's gentle on the on the the audience um, and also allows you a nice nap. Um, and he says he likes boring films because it makes you think later, even it, it doesn't cheat you later at that moment, uh, it doesn't cheat you later in life. Um, So, eh, the quote is really beautiful, but I'm butchering it up. Um, So, um, I'll I'll present the film. It's called In the Diner Bath. Yeah, I think you Sorry, a over. I don't know what happened to the map.
0: Sorry, everybody. Get this. I can't remember. How about mirror? Mirror. Just hit mirror displays, I think. Yes. Yeah. You so you might want to back up.
4: There. Okay. Is that,
0: is that it there?
4: Yeah. Okay. I just uh, I just close everything out. And Is there a way I can turn off the light or?
5: difficult than what she had captured. The falling light, the rind of Limoncello, the tall half-Korean half-Russian vortex was holding my face hostage. Black-white heels, exquisite tight leather pants. My friends have drifted far into the bathroom, their faces floating plastic coins, visible, blurry, pressed to the corridor of the bar doors. In the backdrop, a clinking drop of slot machine. My mouth was busy, my lungs were busy. She was going to take me home, first into her mouth, and much later sprawled out on her condo. The vagus light hadn't fallen, and the traffic had been halted by the soundtrack of 2 a.m. on repeat. She drank too much, but drove me to her place anyway. You're going to be safe. You're going to be safe, she kept on repeating, while swirling in her forerunner. In a Vegas bathroom, she drank my gaze and in one glance offered me her entire wardrobe of feminine ardors, breasts, skin, thong, fingers, tongue, eyelashes. She had the perfect symmetry of east and west, submerged beneath. I had no idea what corridor to exit. Taking my hand into hers, she informed me that she used to be a circus performer, a contortionist who fit into a nine-inch box and an elephant trainer, but, but now she was just a high-paid masseuse. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder.
0: <laughs>
5: on my hand while aiming for my lips, swollen with the polyamorous light flickering back and forth between the cracks of my teeth. She held my tongue in place for a very long time, as though my tongue was a stargazer that she must corner. At last, she released me back into the glittering disco light and asked me what kind of poetry I wrote, and if I had them memorized, and if so, if I didn't mind reciting. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. She had just, in one night, gambled away. Grand, her partner of five years, was never around. Her father died of pancreatic cancer. She poured this information out as if they were pocket change she must get rid of, as if they were a burden dangling in her slack pocket or making too much noise and stirring the strides she made. I
0: the out i become a I'll
5: To relieve the stress, I told her I would try not to be home tonight. My mother helped me dress. If you must seduce a woman, this is the way to go about it, my mother informed me casually. Treating me professional, like one of her clients, she donned me in high heels, dark clothes that spoke to my curves, and told me if I came home tonight, she might as well fold her business. It was her business to make women sexy. But her fucking was heartbreaking. She had changed into a cotton dress, exhibiting her exquisite eyes, and she sprawled out on her sectional sofa. She wanted to watch La Vie en Rose at 2 a.m. with me and so we watched La Vie en Rose at 2 a.m. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. I thought people just fucked and shuffled immediately into amnesia. I wasn't prepared for Edith Piaf and her, So we watched Edith Piaf and her sad, murmuring voice as it echoed through the different corridors of her condo-like tea bag chimes. She petted her cat and I wondered what her partner, thinking deserting this intoxicating island for more circus life. I saw a few scars on her arms and wrists fading lightly and asked about their history. From training elephants, she informed me sometimes they had gotten close. She petted the forehead of the cat some more as she told me more about her childhood in the circus. Her mother and father did it and they taught her and so she did it. Her father died of pancreatic cancer, a horrible death, she told me, in so much pain. She sent money to her mother to help her cope, though she struggled with the domineering effect of her mother. There was so much wind in her voice as I listened. she spoke about her father, her bitter relationship with her mother some more, I felt like I leaned back into time, into a place where heartaches would no longer exist. If writing doesn't work out, I'm going to become a bodybuilder. This immaculate aura of her feminine exquisiteness all there available for her partner and I was there instead a fable, perhaps, on a non-existent mantle of falling light. Though I had been drawn to women emotionally, she was the first woman I was drawn to sexually, in the most provocative way possible. I had come from Iowa, land of bovine cows, and white people. Russian felt the hunger of my desire for her or perhaps the music from the film had become too unbearable. She kissed and peeled me away layer by layer. She removed inch by inch of her dress, her height, her languished melancholy, and by then had already pinned me to the sofa. Tell me what you want and I please you, she kept on repeating firmly and gently as she entered me. I remember her lifting her long finger from the curtain that hid my hierarchy of grief and pleasure and began to surround me with a silence. Much later, when my lungs had the capacity to develop their own photographic lenses, the vapor of sorrow I felt became my own pleasure. What she had done was trafficked my clitoris through enclosure by zooming in and out, making me exposed before exposure. In retrospect, after I studied what had happened to me viscerally, literally I had become a tripod of some sort, her fingers, the eye that pointed toward light and perception, And somewhere inside of me, I deflected the images of ecstasy and melancholy and distilled them somewhere along the uterine wall. During her opening of me, perhaps it made room for Edith Piaf's voice to siphon itself into me as well. So perhaps. What had been displayed in the theatrical uterine wall of mine was not a silent film of pain or pleasure, but perhaps an opera of hysterical beauty. Our pleasure brought me into her bedroom. The bed appeared as if it were on the floor, but upon closer inspection in the bright Vegas morning, it was a very low platform made out of wood. The platform lifted the bed off the ground so it appeared as if it were floating like a boat. Empty water bottles were a bit gritty.
0: To maybe answer some questions if we have some. So, uh, does that sound good to you? Yeah. (laughs) Great. So, uh,
3: questions for our guest.
4: Yes. Yes.
0: What was it like in the Brown MFA
4: program? Um, It was exquisite. Um, I I had C.D. Wright as an instructor. I had Forest Gander. I work with Carol Mesa and Brian Evanson, and um, I I was accepted into both programs, um, poetry and fiction. Um, so when I spoke to Brian um, about um, to give me some time to think before entering the program, which one I wanted to enter, and. Um, he said, "You don't need to think because you can do both." Um, so I I did everything when I was there. I I, I took a, a film course with um, the experimental filmmaker Leslie Thorne, and I work with everyone that I could work with. Everyone in fiction, everyone in poetry, everyone in um, um, I even got myself involved with one of the playwrights, and so it's it's. The program is uh, with my mentor's death. The program is right now at, um, I don't know, it's fragile. (laughs) But um, when I was there, um, when everyone was there, it was amazing because I get to work with Palliofio and Carol Mesa as well in the fiction department. Um, It was was a very, it was a very, fruitful place for me because I was able to explore all my passion there and, and much more. It was also a place where I also developed my love for photography which is my recent passion. I, I love photography um, and one of the cameras that I I got when I was at Brown uh, was helped by one of the professors who said you know you need to look for a really good camera for making foam and for um, taking photographs, I know the perfect camera for you, and um, so I think one of the great benefits of being in a, an institution like Brown is that um, I had tremendous resources—not just the resource that is physical, but it's also an abstract form of resources, which is often taken place between professors and their students. So uh, I, I would recommend develop a very a deep relationship with your professors because they have the kind of knowledge that you can acquire um, later in life. It's only through experience that you can do that and that takes a lot of time. Thank you. Yes? What's your method when you write? If you just, I, don't know. Um, I have one of the speedest form of Um, creating Um, if it comes at me I drop everything for it so if I'm in the middle of like driving I pull over if I'm in the middle of a conversation I said hold that thought (laughs) and I run Um, so it's a very immediate basically my name now now (laughs) so I I do it now. I don't wait until the muse disappear and I try to drag her leg out from the darkness and make her do things that she doesn't want to do. Um, when she comes, I obey. <laughs> um, and I listen to um, the overpowering force of creativity. Um, it's, um, those kind of thoughts don't happen often, but you can cultivate it training and through discipline um, but um, my best writings are the ones that I obey and it's faster and it's, I don't do that many that much editing um, when you listen to your moose and it tells you immediately to drop everything to create um, you don't have to spend that much time editing and re-editing and revising you it just leaps off the page and it self-sustaining, and it has a life of its own, and it will abduct anyone on its way. So take advantage of it. That's my method. I've learned that other people have other methods, such as they'll write for like five hours a day, Um, first thing in the morning, and I think that's ridiculous and boring. (laughs) Um, And I think it's a form of self-torture, you know some of my best writing i 've written for just maximum two hours um, and if it 's the energy carries me eight hours but not every day, I, I would go crazy and I love writing um, I think building a really healthy um, relationship with your writing through through urgency and through now and through moderation is the best form of um, writing practice that you can give yourself while having a life. Um, like you can do other forms of creativity that is related to writing and poetry writing or fiction writing. It becomes a, a large part of your writing but you don't know it because you're writing when you're not writing. Um, and some of my best writings um, takes place when I'm staring at the ceiling. Um, I was asked what inspired me to write, and I'm like staring at the ceiling. <laughs> 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 but um, I don't know if that is what you wanted on a larger scale of your question. But that's what I would suggest. Yes. So
0: maybe as like an did
4: you just sort of let out the flow or dictate the plot? I, I had um, like a um, the seed of what I wanted to be um, three or four years before I wrote the manuscript. It was in 2009 when I wrote Fish in Exile. Oh, or I had the idea for Fish in Exile. And um, I wrote a large part of it actually on a typewriter. Um, And it was an antique, one over 100 years old um, typewriter, and I wrote the dialogue in the way that you saw it. Um, It was formed even then, and the characters had already developed the names, had already been um, pertinent in my consciousness. It was just a matter of time when I could devote to writing them. And the MFA program gave me the time to manifest some of my uh, creative ideas for the project but um, and then it turned into a novella and I want it to be a novel so um, all the characters came when they needed to come uh, and they co- they came very fast um, and very I dropped everything to get the their words out, um, and when they came out, they, it took a bit of revising of placing where the dialogue should be, and I had to rewrite the last sixty pages of the manuscript or something like that, because originally it was designed in a beehive. I wanted to end with a beehive, but the beehive metaphor didn't work. So I think it got switched to the garlic. Um, I think but I I'm not a reliable narrator of my own work. <laughs> so I might have lied to you later down the road and wrote something else completely, but for now, based on my memory, it's <laughs> what it is right now. But you can unquote me later if I'm wrong. <laughs> Does that answer your question? Okay.
0: Can I ask, uh, um, when you are working on, because because you work in so many genres, I see them as related in terms of the, the work, but um, is it, like you're saying, kind of instinctual that you're working in one mode or genre or another, or, or how do you, uh, do you work on the entire book at, 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 at the same time, or do you work it on fiction and poetry kind of simultaneously?
4: Or um, I work on everything at once. Yeah. Um, so if I'm doing um, poetry, nonfiction, fiction fiction, experimental writing, mainstream writing and film and photography, all those, it, it takes place all at once. Um, um, I wrote in uh, one of the essays for Glimmetry about how I view like my writing is like a large fabric in which um, the uh, longer parts I can turn it into um, novels and novellas, and the shorter ones that doesn't fit and couldn't be turned into a dress or a skirt. I use them. To turn them into poems, so I do recycle my work religiously um, you don't need to throw things away they, they don't work some some words didn't work at that time when I was writing them and then later they work mas- magically in another manuscript and so i don't I don't let go of them um, Yet, because they they do operate, and sometimes I what I've been working at, what I've been working when I was at Brown was I wonder what the manuscript would look like if it were in a poetry form and in a in a in the a fiction form. So I would write two manuscript for it, which hasn't come out to the world yet, but. So I did a poetry manuscript for the same content, and then a nonfiction manuscript for um, the same content, and then also a fiction manuscript for the same content. So I had three versions of. Um, one is obviously only um, about twenty thousand words or less because it's in the poetry format, but um, the uh, nonfiction and the fictions are the sixty thousand. Um, or more um, word bracket, so word count bracket. So it, it's um, I recommend doing that. Then you don't know, you don't wonder. Oh, should have that piece be, become poetry? Well, now it becomes everything. Um, so I I try to. Um, and it doesn't take a lot of time to write another manuscript once you have the backbone a structure like you wanted. So, yes, I, I do everything simultaneously then, but um, <laughs> uh, it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone. Some people, they just, like, I can only do poetry, and I completely understand, because I'm geographically retarded, um, so when I drive, I can't talk on the cell phone. <laughs> so I completely understand people who can't operate in more than one uh, restaurant at a time and um, but it works for me and when it doesn't it, then it doesn't do
0: you one more question okay well thank you so much thank you. Thank you.
4: I think he's he coming
0: in the third year of the program.
4: Yeah.